Mark Lentz, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. It's exciting to be able to begin a new season, our 13th season on this podcast. And uh, once again, we plan to be bringing you a whole series of conversations with the authors of great new academic books, authors of new academic journal articles, as well as people who just are going to be able to talk about their research programs, uh, current events, and all the other things that are of interest to those who follow uh, the Middle East political science community. Uh, on this week's episode, first of the year, we're going to begin with uh, a book by Robert Kubinek of, of NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, Making Democracy Safe for Business, just published with Cambridge University Press. And then for the second half of this week's episode, we're going to do something a bit different. As many of you know, the American Political Science Association's annual meeting was disrupted by a hotel worker strike uh, across Los Angeles. Hundreds of people canceled their participation. Others decided to go, many of them people from the region who already had visas and tickets that they couldn't cancel. Um, and basically, a lot of the panels were either canceled, moved online, or in the case of the APSA Mina politics section uh, run by Nadine Sika and Curtis Ryan, uh, they actually were able to transfer, defer their panels up until next year, uh, where they can present their research in Philadelphia. That was a good solution to a very difficult problem, but at the same time, it did deprive early career scholars of a critical opportunity to share their research at an important time in their career. So while it's not the same thing, I invited junior scholars from section panels to each put together seven minute virtual poster uh, describing their work and its significance that we can communicate to the listeners of this podcast. And so you'll be hearing in the second half of today's show from four of them. Ansar Jassim uh, from Unmaking Homes, Urban Violence and Its Afterlives in Baghdad. Uh, Elizabeth Parker Magyar on workplace networks and social movements in Jordan, Amir Mahdavi on Iran's 2021 election, and Ameni Mahrez, uh, who will be speaking about her new work in progress. And without further ado, let's get to our conversations. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Robert Kubinek, New York University of Abu Dhabi, author of the brand new Cambridge University Press book, Making Democracy Safe for Business, Corporate Politics During the Arab Uprisings. Uh, Bob, it's great to have you here. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and um, what you think the major contributions are? Sure thing. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on here. It's it's really cool to get to talk about this project that that has been in the works for uh, almost ten years, not quite. Um, and uh, what got me motivated to to work on this um, was a puzzle about the Arab Spring. Um, and at, at the time I started working, as you know, 2014, 2015, the Arab Spring, you know, still had this potential, right, to change, to revolutionize Arab governments and Egypt and Tunisia in particular. There was still optimism and hope. Um, but that started to fade pretty quickly. And one of the planks of those, you know, reform project, uh, reform movement, social movements, uh, was to get rid of corruption. You know, if I said in Arabic, they wanted to um, completely change the, the mechanisms of government in both Egypt and Tunisia. And um, one really big concerning thing was that even before, you know, Tunisia's democracy collapsed, or even before Egypt's, you know, authoritarianism got reestablished, um, it was clear that that those initiatives are falling short, that corruption had survived the Arab Spring. And in particular, what had survived was this class of people that are often called crony capitalists, big business, elites, who had survived this transition. And, you know, people did not, and you can look at the polling data, people did not perceive the, the Arab Spring as, as accomplishing this objective. So uh, I decided to study these actors, business people, um, who were threatened in many ways by this democratic transition, threatened that it would change the way they did business, and how they managed to survive and even thrive. And I found I did, um, uh, I spent about a year in uh, Tunisia uh, doing a lot of interviews. I did fewer. I was only able to spend like a few weeks in Egypt. Um, the situation there became, uh, you know, very difficult. Um, uh, but uh, I spent uh, time doing interviews, and then I, I complemented that with a lot of online survey research of businesses in these countries. I was sort of uh, something I, I talk about a lot in the book. 
And I just sort of uncovered these ways that businesses had been involved politically really from the very beginning of these transitions um, through ways that were kind of identifiable and some that were very, very much track. Uh, of course, one you'd expect is campaign finance, which they're very involved in in Tunisia during all their democratic elections. Also in Egypt during the democratic, um, you know, the, their one democratic election, but then later on under the military, they were very involved in elections. Um, but also through using their employees as sort of a, a source of votes. So uh, my surveys uncovered a, a pretty high rate of employees reporting um, that their bosses told them to vote for a specific political candidate. Um, and so businesses have these sort of political levers that they can use, and they were very effective at using these levers to, in Tunisia, sort of ingratiate themselves to the Democrats, right, uh, new rulers, and in Egypt, uh, playing sort of handmade into the military regime. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, the, the point I make in the book is that, you know, these sort of systems, these, these patterns of crony capitalism are, are bad for democracy. They undermine democracy. Um, as we saw in Tunisia, that happened kind of over time, right? And for me, doing this project, it was fascinating seeing that happen because I was very negative sort of early on. Didn't know it was going to collapse when Kais Said came to power. Uh, and then in Egypt, you know, helping authoritarianism kind of become more firmly entrenched and established. So those are kind of the big lessons, yeah. I guess, from the book. And it, I think it's important to look at uh, this uh, business class, uh, which is, you know, I think as political scientists, we often tend to look at the activists, maybe we look at the military, look at political parties, and it has been something of a black hole. There's been obviously been a few good books about business and politics, but it really hasn't probably gotten the attention it deserves. Tell us a little bit about this class, these people that you're talking about, and the point that you make about how the systems, the authoritarian systems pre-revolutions um, kind of selected for certain types of businesses to succeed. Yeah, so so um, uh, people who study the Middle East and people who study kind of political economy have talked for a while about, you know, this phrase crony capitalism. Um, and it comes out of sort of the failed liberalization projects uh, of Arab governments. So, you know, shortening things very quickly that, you know, they kind of started out in a sort of a status sort of socialist direction in 1960s, 1970s. That was sustained a lot by, by uh, kind of assistance they got from Gulf states, from Western powers. Um, those sort of big state projects started to fall apart and they started to pull the state back and allow business people to kind of take over. Um, but the business people who moved in, uh, you know, were not sort of, I don't know, your kind of typical, um, you know, disrupt the economy type of uh, entrepreneurial innovators. They were often, you know, government managers or in Egypt's case, former military officers who had political connections and could take advantage of investment opportunities uh, because these states remain kind of very heavily regulated. They had lots of rules that were Byzantine. And so people who had, you know, some access to government officials were the ones who benefited from these opportunities. And so especially big business in these countries, it tended to be very static. It tended to, to be people kind of had a monopoly in a certain area and their company was there. Um, it had lasted for a long time. It wasn't innovating. It wasn't creating jobs. And that was creating this, this perception I talked about that, um, that, you know, people felt in the Arab world that, that, that cronyism uh, and corruption was sort of at the center of the regime. And a lot of people in Egypt, you know, or Tunisia, they couldn't, they didn't know what was really going on, uh, like how these networks of relationships worked, um, but they could sense sort of the injustice. And, you know, especially after the Arab Spring, after these regimes collapsed, we learned more like, about these things and people were not wrong. Um, one story I tell in the kind of very um, early part of the books about Iman Trabelsi, one of um, Ben Ali's wife's, uh, his brother. So um, she, she had this notorious uh, network. All of her relatives were involved in all kinds of business deals in Tunisia. And Imed had a, a monopoly on the import of bananas. He, and, and I know this because he confessed it to a transitional justice committee, actually, in Tunisia. So as a live TV, he confessed this. He had the ability to import bananas at basically any price. Um, because if people tried to import them and they tried to go through customs, the customs people would stop the shipment, right? 
And only if they received his sort of personal word would they allow it to come through. Um, and apparently this actually led to banana shortages in the country and, and things like that. So that that's sort of maybe a bit of an extreme case, mm -hmm. right? But that those political connections obviously were not available to everyone, just just to the elites or to people who had, and, and it wasn't necessarily from the, you know, if you remember the dictator's party, could be you're from an influential tribe. Uh, in, in Tunisia, especially, there are all these like influential families that kind of go back to sort of the nobility. You have the same thing in Egypt. Um, and often, especially in Egypt, you get a lot of people who are ex-government managers or ex-military and kind of plan those relationships to kind of help their businesses succeed. Um, and, and the ultimate sum of this is that, you know, you have liberalization, you have quote unquote market development, the World Bank, IMF, write these position papers in the 90s that are, you know, so rosy, you know, things are going to change rapidly in, in Egypt and Tunisia, and they don't, right? Um, un, you know, GDP rises, unemployment's still high, um, people, you know, are still immigrating out of the country, um, you're not seeing the kind of investment and growth that you need to, to actually provide jobs. Um, so, you know, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, the larger context. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, that kind of the conclusion of my book is that, you know, as the French say, plus ça change, like more things change, the more they stay the same. And there's really hard to see like a lot of, you know, systemic change after the Arab Spring. The way your book, the, the, the structure, the logic of the book, though, um, it starts with that sudden, highly disruptive and unexpected regime change in which all of these comfortable arrangements and, uh, you know, these clientelistic relationships are suddenly thrown up in doubt. So walk us through that a little bit and kind of the stages by which the, uh, you know, th these business people suddenly had to confront these new realities. Yes. In in hindsight, I, I, and even now, I guess I'm expressing some hindsight. In hindsight, it's easy to say, the businessmen were going to survive, right? Mm -hmm. At the time, that was not so clear. Right. So, so 2011 comes in and people are swept out of power. Right. And so people who had relied on these connections, all of a sudden, those connections had become a liability overnight. Right. The the people they knew in government, government ministries, uh, especially businesses that had contracts that they had obtained by illicit means, which was very common in both Egypt and Tunisia. They are now extremely worried. And some people were actually investigated and, and imprisoned in, in both um, Egypt and Tunisia. Egypt famously went after the steel magnate Ahmed Ez and threw him in prison. Um, so, so there was a sense that, you know, the status quo had changed. One thing that I document in my surveys, which is really interesting, one way is that businesses actually experienced this um, in, in sort of the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring was that uh, they actually had to pay more in bribes, okay? Because what happened was that they had someone they dealt with, you know, in the government to get things done, get their goods imported, to pay taxes, to whatever, paperwork. Uh, when Ben Ali was swept out of power, all of a sudden, you, you, these bureaucrats remained in office, like the lower level ones, but now they didn't have anyone who told them what to do. And so when a businessman came or business person said, I need this license, they could actually ask for more because essentially they now were unconstrained, right? Um, and so, you know, for all these reasons, it was a profoundly unsettling time. For business people in both countries. I mean, there is a lot of worry. Uh, there is a lot of concern. What's going to happen to us? Um, and so that led to, you know, political mobilization, right? That they, and you can see, you can document this, that, you know, from the first round of elections, they were involved in political parties. Generally speaking, those first elections, they weren't particularly, um, you know, successful. Um, in Egypt, they mobilized behind this, you know, NDP guy, Shafiq. He lost. And then in Tunisia, the Tunisian landscape, electoral landscape was very fragmented and, you know, business people were involved in different parties, but, but nothing really kind of came out of that. Uh, and so they were quite vulnerable for a while, right? And, and this is, I think, you know, one of the, one of the lessons of the book, right? I, I do think there was a missed opportunity. They started to kind of prosecute people. They started to go after them. And they stopped. There was this really interesting thing that happened in Tunisia. And again, a lot of this, it's interesting how how easy, like <laughs> these things get covered up so quickly. Um, but in Tunisia, they published these lists. So there was one list that was the members of the dictator's family. And if you read in Tunisia, they confiscated a bunch of assets of these people. Um, and they've 
I think, I don't, I don't know if they've ever managed to actually sell them for a long time. They were just like sitting in a lot in the airport, like all these expensive cars. So there was a list and, but those lists was mainly um, the actual members of Benali's family and maybe very close business associates. And that's what gets mentioned in the press. There was a second list that was floating around. I never managed to get a copy of it despite multiple attempts. Um, but it did exist and it had a much broader network of people who are kind of all beneficiaries of, you know, the system, right? Um, that second list, uh, you know, no one ever prosecuted anyone. No one ever investigated. Uh, there was a transitional justice uh, committee in Tunisia. Uh, part of its mandate was so-called economic crimes. Mm -hmm. They invited people to come and give testimony. And so people apparently gave them lots of information about corruption, corrupt dealings, all this kind of stuff. Um, but just as they were about to kind of get started with, you know, prosecuting it or, you know, calling business people to testify, things like this, um, Tunisia passed this notorious Economic Reconciliation Act in 2016 and um, basically said the Transitional Justice Committee no longer has the purview of, of these so-called economic crimes. And it, it granted immunity to public officials who had been involved in these things. Um, and which was a big win, obviously, for the business community. Um, and they had been staunt, they had been actively uh, lobbying on it. Um, that was actually during my field research. So they even were lobbying me, to, you know, trying to convince me that this was a good law to pass. Um, so, you know, un unfortunately, uh, you know, th that's kind of what happened. But, but yeah, it was a really rude shock for many of these businesses. And I'm sure a lot of them at least thought about, you know, repatriating their assets, moving overseas. But for a lot of them, you know, their businesses are very domestic based in these domestic economies. They didn't have a lot of other options. So they had to, you know, the back was to the wall. They had to think of something, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and and ultimately, you know, my book talks about how they basically managed to, to mobilize to protect themselves. And, and the, one of the key puzzles of the book and the main divergence there is your argument about how the business community in Egypt and Tunisia responded very differently. And you develop these concepts of like broad and narrow rent seeking. So walk us through that. I think that's like the core of the book. And let's, let's get the whole argument yeah. out there. Sure. Yeah. So I, I want to know like, okay, how, how do business people do this, right? How, how do they actually get these objectives accomplished? It's It's impressive right? How they manage to undermine these sort of forms of accountability. <clears throat> there's sort of a way that I think, and this is kind of what I talk about in the book, kind of theoretically, there's a way that I think business people sort of naturally operate in politics, especially in a, in a cronious sort of corrupt system. I call it broad rent seeking. And it means you make deals with whoever is the one person you need to get the job done. And you really don't care about who they are. Okay. Um, and this was so interesting to me when I was, especially was in Tunisia, was how few business managers I talked to were ideological in, in, in the sense of how they participated in politics. And this does depart from kind of a lot of the standard depictions of business, the idea that business people, let's say they have like a capitalist project or something, they're neoliberal, they want free trade agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And that was not, that was not true of most of the business people I talked to. And even the ones I did who, who were, let's say, libertarian, that did not guide their political actions. So one of the crystallizing interviews for me, I was sitting down with a car dealer, car dealer owner in, in Tunisia. And the car dealerships in Tunisia are notoriously corrupt because every car dealer essentially has their own private monopoly, monopoly on the import of automobiles. And if you ever tried to live in Tunisia, you'd know that the automobiles there are incredibly expensive, like just amazingly expensive. So I was sitting down with him. And he gave me this speech about how he's this like hardcore libertarian, economic freedom, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he described how he gave money to like literally every single party that was in the parliament then, including the leftists, the these people called the Front Populaire, the, the Popular Front, who were, you know, the ones who gave these fiery sort of socialist speeches, you know, um, and, and at least on paper, very opposed, opposed to, um, you know, business, big business. And, you know, he said, look, I am a business man, I'm trying to protect my, you know, my, my company. And so I will give money to whoever, whoever can get me what I want, which is, you know, in his case, you know, they continue, you know, make sure he gets that same car, the license to import cars. And so I think that is sort of the natural kind of business take on politics. 
And it means that you don't necessarily see sort of pro-business parties, right? What you see is a lot of deal-making that's all going on behind the scenes. <clears throat> now, can business become a force that has a political project? Uh, I say yes, but that's not an, it's a natural thing for them, at least in these sorts of, you know, kind of corrupt kind of places where they can work behind the scenes. That does happen in Egypt, right? The, and that's what I call narrow rent seeking. And it just means that in order for businesses to get these rents, to get these perks and privileges they need to survive, they have to deal with a very with a with a specific political patron. And in other words, there's someone who controls things, who runs things, and they have to deal with that actor. And in Egypt, what happens is that the military comes in after uh, Mohammed Morsi, he's thrown out of office. He was a democratic democratically elected leader. He's, he's there's a coup. And the military quickly establishes control over bureaucracies and, and already actually had a lot of control previously. And they become the ones that all businesses in Egypt have to deal with. There is no one else. And so they have to essentially, that's what I call narrow rent seeking. They have to deal with the military. There's no, no other actors that, that they can you know, distinguish. And that means that they really have to follow and support the military's political project in a way that they don't have to in Tunisia. In Tunisia, they can kind of stay in the background and give money and get, get their deals. In, in Egypt, they have to support the military, right? And they're even competing with each other to show that they support the military more. And one of the kind of big statistics in my book is that when I do these surveys, I find that the rate of what I call employee uh, voter coercion, meaning where the company tells someone to vote for a specific candidate, it's about double in Egypt relative to Tunisia. Hmm. Um, e Egyptian managers are much more likely to tell their employees, go vote for a specific candidate. Now in the survey, I don't ask which candidate, but I didn't really need to because you know that election, that was you know election in 2015, it was a military control election. There's really only, you know, there's only one person to vote for. And, so, and it definitely in the, in the presidential election, it was, it was for sure like that. Um, so, so that's kind of this big, you know, theoretical difference. And it matters for politics because, you know, when the business sort of join up with the military, I think, I argue, it really helped the military to consolidate control because the, it's not, it's not just the state. It's not just the repressive apparatus. It's now businesses, right? It's people's place of work. They are facing pressure to support the military. Um, and, you know, jobs in Egypt are hard to come by. And if you have one, you want to keep it. Right. And so it essentially creates social pressure that complements, right, the, the, the military's, you know, ability to repress, to throw people in jail, to kill people. Um, and I think that that is a contributing factor to the survival of authoritarianism. In Egypt or in Tunisia, by contrast, businesses, you know, you don't really have a big effect on policy. Um, beyond like, let's say this, you know, Economic Reconciliation Act, where they kind of, you know, managed to dodge some of these corruption probes. You don't see a lot going on. There's there's actually very few. Uh, if uh, I collect data on the sort of the Tunisian parliament, there were very few economic laws of any kind that were passed. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, they're not trying to reform the state. They're not trying to push for you know even like let's say anti-worker legislation stuff like this. Um, they're they're working behind the scenes. They're visiting MPs one on one, um, giving them money for campaigns, which is technically illegal. Um, doing things like this, ingratiating themselves, but they're not—they're not pursuing a project, and and that to me is sort of kind of the natural state of a business person in a, in a sort of corrupt system. One of the things which was interesting about the uh, the Egypt case and then the way the, the way that you kind of worked it through is that it really appears that a lot of the time that these uh, businesses are actually supporting the military and policies that are actively harming their own economic interests. Um, and yet, as you put it, they have no place else to go. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as political economists, that's kind of what we look for is, you know, when when the rubber hits the road, right? Uh, when people really start to lose their livelihoods. When I was in Egypt in 2016, that was actually the first IMF deal that Egypt signed. Now they're trying to do another one and things aren't going well. Um, but at that time, it was really clear that that the reforms that were going to be implemented, they were going to basically increase the value added tax. And only formal businesses paid that tax. And the military, military affiliated companies, which they have a lot of, were exempt. 
And on top of that, the economy itself wasn't doing well. There was a lot of spending, but that spending was being directed to military-owned enterprises and their cronies, right? Some of those cronies were business people, but but the, you know, the sense was like, you know, that's a limited pie. And in general, the economy wasn't doing well outside of those specific sectors. Um, so, you know, th there really were in a, in a crutch. Um, and in, in part of, I had a, it, it didn't get to do as many interviews as I wanted to do in Egypt because literally people would just simply cancel, right? Mm -hmm. They were afraid of repression. Um, <clears throat> uh, I actually tried to contact Nagib Suwiris on Twitter and he responded, but then again, like once they learned who it was, they didn't want to talk. Um, but I did have one business person, uh, they had gave me a very revealing interview, partly because I knew him from, for a while. Um, and he said, look, you know, we own a factory, this factory, uh, gets, you know, it, uh, I don't remember is some kind of manufacturing and it depends on supplies. Those supplies, uh, come from a military owned company. And that's the only company that produces, you know, that particular type of material. Um, and this guy, you know, was politically very opposed to the, to, to the military. He had been involved in some of the political, uh, you know, Muslim uh, Islamic activism. I think he was a Muslim Brotherhood member. Um, and he, he had been very political. He's like, look, Bob, I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm not going to do it because our livelihood depends on maintaining this relationship. Right. Um, and that was very revealing. And then, you know, I think especially my survey data, just bore that out, you know, because when I let people talk, you know, or let people communicate through that survey, some of the open-ended responses, I mean, people were just like, yeah, the military is this hegemonic actor, you know, they use hegemon, but you know, <laughs> and they control everything and there's nothing we can do. And either we do what they say, or, you know, we're done. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not actually true, right? Maybe the military doesn't have the ability to go and like shut down every business, but that was the perception, right? And perception is reality. And when that's when that's your perception, then that's what's going to drive your behavior, right? Um, and that's going to make that's going to make it possible for the military to push through these reforms that previously you would have said, look, you know, under Mubarak's regime, the NDP, you know, those guys might have had enough clout to say, look, no, 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 we don't want that reform, right? That's going to hurt our bottom line. Egypt, they're along for the ride. Uh, you know, Nagib Suwiris, this you know very prominent businessman, supported the coup was very involved in the uh, Tamada movement that led to Morsi's overthrow. You know, he publishes some op-eds occasionally that are sort of like, hey, you know, maybe we could do things differently, get some more reforms. He has a party in, in, in parliament, but never comes out and like is overly critical of the military, right? And he he's he's still along for the ride, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, so, so that, you know, when we, when you see someone that actually has a lot to lose and they're still not able to mobilize to stop that stop those losses that's really telling right that's saying they do not have other options and then the other side and i still think they don't yeah and the other side of the story which is so interesting is the kind of the rise and then more or less collapse of nidatunas um which seemed to be like a vehicle for these like old regime crony capitalist business elites and yet they were they proved unable to overcome their own internal differences and the like, which just seems very interesting compared to what you saw in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, it's um, the the broad rent seeking is is not so great. Yeah, for any kind of sort of ideological project, and there are these elites in in Tunisia who are sort of the survivors of the dictator's party. Uh, it's called the RCD in French. I can't translate off the top of my head. Um, and uh, some of these people survived. They're still around. As I said, the first round of elections in Tunisia did not go well for these guys. <laughs> they, you know, all the parties they tried to support kind of fell apart or never got any seats. Natha, the Islamist party, is unstoppable, right, for the first round of elections. Um, and in the second round, they still did quite well. Um, but the, you know, the, these uh, former regime guys uh, ended up making alliance with business people and brought in some liberals who were kind of afraid of Nafa, right? Um, they, and they made this thing work, called it Nadat Tunis. Um, and, and it was very clear, uh, you know, coded or not so coded messages that they wanted to rewind the clock, right? So Bejikada Sepsi was their president, and he called himself a Borghibist, uh, a, a supporter of Borghiba, the T Tunisia's first dictator who ruled for about 30 years, right? Um, and so he was hearkening back to this supposedly golden era. 
um, in projecting himself as this new authoritarian leader. And, and when he was in power, there were several times that he tried, you know, he declared a state of emergency. He took these actions, not that different from what Kais Said later was able to do. He, wa- he clearly wanted to centralize power, right? And Nidat Tunis, and honestly, these business people I talked to, you know, I would say very few of them were, were like heavily committed Democrats. I'll put it that way. They were all, I think, generally supportive of the authoritarian project. Most of them expressed, you know, um, uh, nostalgia, at least for Ben Ali, right? What I heard was like, Ben Ali, he knew how to get things done. He would cut through the red tape, right? He said, he said, we do this and we just do it. You know, they, they admired Ben Ali. So they were supportive, but were they willing to risk, let's say, some of these relationships they were building with, with other parties? Um, did they want to come out and kind of be the public face of this coalition, right? And uh, and and were they going to spend as much money as they had to to make you know to make it work? And I think that over time that became clear that no, it did not. Um, if you did, they started, uh, and, uh, they started their TV stations and uh, and things like that. Yeah. Yes, um, there were there were things that were happening, but it, uh, so the TV stations and I should. Mark, there's always so many things I could have talked about, you know, in the book. But yeah, Nabil Kadoui, this um, another businessman, owns his own TV station and is a really great example because um, he did, I think, you know, support Nadat Tunis or give them favorable media coverage. But then he ended up running himself for president, right? Against Nadat Tunis's or Tahia Tunis, the successor, against their own candidate. Um, and this that was constantly happening. Business people were jockeying for influence. Uh, they saw very little reason to work together. Um, and so Nidat Tunis only lasted about six months in office before it split. And then it kept splitting <laughs> until it's these like smaller and smaller chunks. Um, uh, yeah, and it, you know, democracy survived. It, my book goes up to 2019 and 2019 elections, um, which which led to Kaya Syed coming to office, but they were definitely free and fair. It was open electoral competition. Um, there were some accusations of vote buying or what have you, but you know, democracy kept going. And I really don't think, you know, uh, you look at Kaya Syed's coup, I really don't see business being heavily involved. I don't I don't think they were demanding it. Um, I mean, people, they certainly shared frustration with the parliament. All Tunisians share frustration, but I don't see them, you know, it's not, and I don't, you don't see people like Nagib Sawidis, you know, who is real cheerleader for the military coup. Um, they don't think that have the same thing in, you know, with Kaya Syed. And that's why, you know, when I've, written some op-eds and things, but, you know, I've, I've really viewed Kaya Said as a weak leader because he doesn't have that coalition. Um, he has not been able to reconstitute. It doesn't have, you know, okay, he has some control of the security apparatus, but, but he, he doesn't have anything like the Egyptian mm-hmm. military and what it could do. Um, you know, and, and so, um, so yeah, you know, and it, it's kind of weird. We, we don't talk in political science a lot about the, the collapse of authoritarian parties, right? <laughs> Um, but this one, Nidat Tunis, it judged on its own goals, um, did not do well. It fell apart. No, that's really interesting. Hey, one last question, r- real quick, because uh, we're running low on time. But uh, you you do a lot of this innovative survey work uh, with Facebook that you talk about. You've talked about uh, during our conversation, and it's a big part of the second half of your book. Could you just say just a few words about this method and you know what um, you think, like uh, graduate students or or, or political scientists interested yeah. in using this, what should they know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's absolutely crucial uh, for for people working in uh, you know authoritarian countries um, uh, or countries that just don't have well-developed survey firms, right? Which Tunisia does not. Um, to to you to utilize social media, right? Um, there are so many things we can learn from it. So many things we can study it. Uh, ways we can study it and um, beyond what I do, right? Um, and what I particularly do is I use it as a as a means of recruiting people to take surveys. And, um, you know, it it is somewhat controversial. Some people, you know, I know from reviewers and things, some people don't like it. I think because we have these sort of, especially as academics, like we're not, we, we, we kind of view social media as like the, I don't know, the media of the masses. We kind of look down on it. You know, but the reality is that people are spending you know hours and hours a day on this media, right? Part of my inspiration for using it was doing interviews at companies in Tunisia, walking in and watching employees be on Facebook, right? 
and thinking like, well, why don't I just contact them right at their desk and try to interview them? Um, and my survey, especially the first ones, to be completely honest, were incredibly uh, successful in the sense of getting people to take them, getting useful information. Um, there are definitely limitations, especially the especially the early surveys. I was very cautious. I, I kind of kept things anonymous and made, and I didn't collect like details on certain things that you know later on maybe I wish I had. Um, but it's very clear if you look at the survey data that people you know took the survey. They took it honestly. I have in my Egyptian survey data, I have like compelling accounts of corruption where people just said like, this is happening in this hospital and like there's this military general running it. And, you know, <laughs> people were like really open. And, um, you know, I think especially as, as these regimes become more closed and authoritarian, um, this type of survey research uh, or simply, you know, contacting people, you can, you don't have to, I, I use kind of formal methods of recruitment, but you can also do like snowball sampling where you kind of contact people with Facebook message. Um, you know, it's it's really a great way to, to get in touch with people, to track what's going on. Of course, reading discourse online, doing your own discourse analysis. Um, uh, and, and it's so much safer, right? You're not putting uh, enumerators at risk. You're not putting research assistants at risk. Um, you can, it, it's a relatively, you know, secure way of, of communicating with people and getting their honest opinions. So I think it's, I think it's indispensable tool for, um, studying, you know, especially, especially the more authoritarian countries become, right. Cause we can learn so much from it. Mark, just like your book about Arab media and, you know, satellite TV and how that changed, right. The, the Arab, uh, public space. Um, so I, I think, you know, we ignore these social media at our peril because there's so much that happens there. And, and that is where people sort of are, right? They're, they're on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where we need to reach them. So I'm no, a bit of a zealot, maybe, but that, you know, that's my no, really, really interesting. And I think we're seeing a lot more of it in the field. But uh, we've been speaking, we've been uh, speaking with uh, Bob Kubinek about his new book on, uh, on business and politics in uh, Tunisia and Egypt. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And now, as promised, we turn to our virtual poster session, in which we'll be hearing from four young scholars, each of them working on critical issues uh, related to their dissertations and their ongoing research projects. First up, Ansar Jassin, Unmaking Homes, Urban Violence and Its Afterlives in Baghdad. Uh, Ansar is a first-year PhD student in political science at the Free University of Berlin and a fellow at the Berlin Graduate School for Muslim Cultures and Society. I start my paper with a description of a rooftop of a family in the northeastern Baghdadi district, officially called today Sarir City, but referred to locally often by its historical name, Revolution City, or El Medina, the city. Although the district, with its at least 2.5 million inhabitants, makes up almost one-third of Baghdad's population, this huge class prejudice and middle-class stereotyping towards the district's inhabitants since the 60s, when the district was built, until today, and this appears in everyday sayings, but also literature or popular series. The neighborhood is also relevant because it's considered the successful example of counterinsurgent tactics of the US Army and urban peripheries, as it is framed. This paper is based on preliminary ethnographic fieldwork or history interviews, as well as discussions with Iraqi academics from my PhD during the period of July 2020 to May 23. With the embargo against Iraq in the 90s, the family, whose rooftop I'm talking about, built a bread oven on the right corner of the rooftop to make the traditional Iraqi tanur bread with wood, as gas was unaffordable for many Iraqis during that time. The oven is still there, right next to the former convenient gas oven of today. The 90s were also marked by regular electricity cuts. Therefore, most people used oil lamps, which are also stored at the rooftop. The walls are covered with several bullet holes. The biggest part of the rooftop is covered by a big metal burnt and rusted storage room, which is the latest addition to this archive. Haji Hussein, the owner of this house, is now in his 60s and telling me about the little neighborhood store he and his sister were running after 2003 and that was made out of metal panels. They regularly had to hide at their neighbors due to the battles between the counterinsurgents and the Iraqi and US military. 
In fact, after 2003, the district became a stronghold of the Soldierist movement and later bastion of the insurgency against the US. From the perspective of the US military, the district was standing symbolically for the ability of the US to control all of Iraq. Controlling the district meant controlling the nation. From 2004 to 2008, the US employed the strategy of confining the enemy in their district by building a wall around it and besieging it. The district's urban architecture, a grid system divided into almost equally sized sectors, made it a great deal easier for the US to develop counterinsurgency based on space. This tactic led to huge destruction of the infrastructure of the neighborhood. However, when driving today through the district, you hardly see these leftovers of the war anymore. There has been reconstruction projects in the district in the last years to remove the scenes of the crime, to reframe and store. So I became interested in understanding how the dwellers of the district have made sense and meaning of this intense period of urban warfare against their district. How do the inhabitants invest these spaces with memories? And how have they created and recreated homes and periods of destruction? Although these imperial ruins have been removed since 2012, but this urban reconstruction has been rather ineffective as when going or driving through the district with friends, they keep on drawing to me maps of violent incidents. Their experiences at the wall or the US checkpoints crossing into one sector or when they want to go to school or the explosions at very specific squares. It appears to me that they live in a multiplicity of realities that I try to account for with the idea of the lenticular memory. I learned the figure of the lenticularity from anthropologist Ressan Haj, who developed this concept to account for the various experiences of multi-situatedness and multi-inhabitants of the Lebanese diaspora around the world. The diasporic lenticularity is a mode of existing in multiple realities that speak to each other. The lenticularance assembles the idea of flip photos that show different pictures depending on the angle you look at. Quote, the flipping changes the angle of vision with the changes the photos being viewed, which changes the photos being viewed. What's important for our perspective is that these photographic surfaces contain the potential for constituting two different images, two different photographic realities that appear like, unquote, that appear like flickering and are probably woven into each other. It's exactly this continuous flickering that friends experience when mapping the past violence in their rebuilt district to me. Then there is another kind of memory formed through urban violence in intimate spaces. This can be best explained by looking at what happened to the neighborhood shop of Hajj Hussein and his sister. It was hit by a rocket during the time of the Americans and the Jaysh al-Mahdi as this time of insurgents and counterinsurgents is locally referred to. The store is made of good material, therefore we didn't just want to throw it away on the street. For this reason, we got it on our rooftop and have used it as a storage room. Look here are the bullet holes, explains his wife to me. The storage room is probably around 15 square meters big and covers a good part of the rooftop. It became recycled by being integrated into the domestic space as a storage room. Here, rather than just being a memory or traces, the leftover of the annihilation of the family's livelihood became materialized in a storage room. It bears witness to how space is not only socially constructed, but also how the social is constructed spatially. I want to think about this as materialized memory and hereby look at the material life of homes during violent conflict. Putting the burn store at the rooftop seems to be less about putting a monument of violence. Rather, it seems to be about the use value of the material of the store. So it's rather an autonomous reconstruction that speaks directly to the past inflicted violence and inscribes itself into the domestic space as the value of a ruin. This approach helps to look at the urban violence and its aftermath, not only as an event. Here I'm following Lubkeman looking at the everyday life during the war in Mozambique, rather than seeing the violence of war as something that suspends social processes. I want to see how it transforms culturally, 
cultural practices and hereby understanding war, quote, as a transformative social condition and not simply as a political struggle conducted through organized violence, unquote. What we can see clearly as the dialectic relationship between the destruction of the city and the remaking of the residents' homes. With both approaches, I want to contribute to the understanding of urban violence that thinks about the afterlife of urban violence and brings in time and space and points um, out that this is not a finished state, but a constant process. And this is critical because it is in these spaces that urban violence forms individuals' personal, social and political consciousness. But if urban violence has an afterlife, and the war can be seen as transformative rather than suspending, then also the notion of herbicide, meaning the killing of the city that has been implied by critical geographers to criticize US warfare in Iraq, has to be seen critically. Now, we'll hear from Elizabeth Parker Magyar. She's a PhD candidate in political science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And her paper is entitled, Workplace Networks and Social Movements, Evidence from Jordan. Hello, um, thank you very much for having me on this podcast and thanks so much to the POMAPS team for putting this together. My name is Elizabeth Parker Magyar and I'm a PhD candidate in political science at MIT. The paper I was scheduled to present at APSA draws from my dissertation research in Jordan on workplace networks and civil society, especially outside of democratic settings. And I situate the paper within a broad literature on how and why civil society movements emerge and endure. So robust civil society is linked to a range of positive governance outcomes, some foundational studies like de Tocqueville, who is someone we would, you know, uh, read in Comparative Politics 101, link a very robust civil society to the quality of democracy. Um, but also in non-democratic settings, civil society has been, you know, linked to the quality of governance and to political mobilization. Um, but with that said, there's been sort of a spate of recent research that, for instance, Dan Mattingly's work from China that looks at how regimes can often use sort of extensive tools to control civil society um, and limit its autonomy um, that in ways that sort of make the emergence of autonomous civil society movements even more puzzling. So I contribute to this research by comparing among really similarly situated groups in Jordan over a pretty broad temporal period. So as folks like Matt LeCouture have written, um, there was a quite impactful spate of labor unrest in Jordan, especially during the Arab Spring period. And as Matt points out in a more recent paper, um, many of these emerge from the public sector and often draw on access to state spaces. So I problematize sort of which groups are able to sort of emerge and endure, aka, um, you know, sustain mobilization over a long period, and compare among public education and healthcare workers. So we would think that these two, two actors should be quite similar, similar because they operate amid a similar legal framework. They operate in very similar bureaucracies. They work in very similarly designed spaces and they're similarly exposed to liberalization, but they play quite different roles within Jordan's civil society landscape. And in healthcare, you have long legalized civil society groups for doctors, dentists, um, nurses, et cetera. And those groups often play impactful roles during what social movement scholars would call periods of political opportunity, as in 1989 and the 2011 Arab Spring. But they tend to be relatively quiet outside of those periods and have a hard time remaining autonomous because they're often sites for contestation from actors like the Muslim Brotherhood or seen as a site, for instance, for patronage politics or patronage distribution. So have quite a bit of contestation from tribal groups, etc. Teachers union is quite different and teachers mobilization is quite different. Um, teachers have been in a legally gray area suspension since 2020 um, that has drawn quite a bit of attention in Jordan. Um, but I take a very long historical lens from the 1950s onward and try to show that even before this recent period that has been in the news, um, teachers have often cycled between periods of very robust mobilization and unusually visual, vi unusually visible response. Um, 
given Jordan's regional status as a comparatively liberal regime. And my theoretical intervention is to point, is to really point to the importance of social ties and certain forms of social networks, the structure of certain forms of social networks that individuals develop with, within the workplace or at work and the utility of those ties, especially in a context where religious or ethnic ties are so important. So I draw on all this evidence that I've gathered during my dissertation research, which includes interviews, but also formalizing network differences and a large observational data set that uses public petitions as a dependent variable. And what I show is that the very cohesive social networks that teachers develop sort of in their day-to-day jobs um, allow frequently allow some teachers to launch activism and also to sustain a national-level movement which this national level organization is quite rare in a setting like Jordan, where scholars like Sean Yom have noted, for instance, that the Hirak movement have opted to sort of refrain from formalizing as a group, given how challenging it is to formalize. And what I emphasize as different between teachers and healthcare workers is that those ties give these activists these really highly localized bases of support that are quite useful in a setting where activists also have to confront competition from tribal groups or religious groups and often force teachers into these sort of like coalition, um, coalition representational bodies that are able to sort of sustain or have strong national level ties. And that's quite different than in healthcare settings where individuals are often very isolated from one another, even at work, getting paid relatively similar salaries and all of that. And as a result, activists often need to draw on ties from places like the university or their tribal background in order to gain prominence, which ultimately sort of weakens healthcare workers' independent roles within Jordanian civil society. I finally use observational data specifically on teachers to show that having workplace ties to a leading national activist is a hugely strong, especially during a period when those activists are under a lot of pressure, is a hugely strong predictor of expressing support for the union, uh, even in this, even during this period where the teachers' union has remained in suspension. So I conclude, you know, I see the research as contributing not only to these broad questions on civil society and labor politics, but I also really try to connect the research to exciting new, um, exciting new findings in political science on the relationship between education and regime type and also research on public sector workforces and the nature of bureaucracies, um, the nature of public interest representation outside of democracies. Next up, let's hear from Amir Mahdavi. He's a PhD scholar in political science at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Previously, he was with Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science and the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Uh, His paper is entitled Iran's 2021 Election, a turning point from electoral to hegemonic authoritarianism. Is it worth exploring the differences among authoritarian regimes? The distinctions among democratic regimes with different electoral institutions and party systems seem obvious to all. However, it is usually more convenient for the media not to confuse their audience with the differences between non-democratic nations. They often divide the world into democratic and autocratic camps. Nevertheless, I would like for listeners to delve with me into the power dynamics of a state, I would argue, is transitioning from one type of autocracy to another one. Particularly as the empirical case here is Iran, the country that has been a mysterious and controversial topic of discussion in the United States from the hostage crisis of 1979 all the way up to its ongoing nuclear crisis. How would political science classify the Islamic Republic of Iran in the spectrum of regime types? There is a relative consensus among comparativists that Iran is a hybrid regime. It is among the approximately 70 countries that are situated in the gray area between dictatorship and democracy. More specifically, as a member of the Electoral Authoritarian League, Iran either lacks the capacity to impose pure authoritarianism or is too weak to pursue democracy. Both electoral and authoritarian institutions are embedded in the constitutions of such states. However, elections are contested among the regime's loyal political elites. The competition is real, but 
the candidates who are allowed to run are limited and the power of democratic institutions is restrained by unelected parts of the government. Elections during the first two decades of the Islamic Republic of Iran's life were quite predetermined and the vote share of the winner of the first six presidential elections was above 80%. However, in a shift toward a more meaningful election during the six subsequent election competitions, that number declined to a range between 50 to 75%, which distinguishes hegemonic autocracy from electoral autocracy. Employing process tracing, here I argue we should revisit the classification of the Iranian regime, recognizing its shift from electoral to hegemonic authoritarianism. As a critical juncture, we can call the 2021 presidential election a turning point from electoral to hegemonic authoritarianism. As a result of the 2021 election, Ebrahim Raisi was elected with a just 48% voter turnout the lowest since the first presidential election. For the first time, 13% of the ballots were either blank or voided, higher than the vote share of the candidate with the most votes after Raisi. Thus, by that measure, the regime has violated the two criteria that political science literature suggests distinguish an electoral autocracy from a hegemonic one. When the incumbents or the regime's desired candidates' votes share compared with the other candidates is inordinarily high and when there is no partisan competition within the parliament which has already happened in the Iranian parliament. I identify two contextual explanations for that shift. The first is the economic shortcomings that prevent the regime from affording the high cost of duality in power. The mixture of democratic and autocratic institutions entails significant overlap, contradictory policymaking, and frictions among parallel organizations. Those dynamics would increase the cost of governance, and don't forget the maximum pressure sanctions imposed by the United States in 2018, which made it really hard for the government to function. Resource shortages create a situation, in the words of former President Rouhani, in which the economy cannot pay a subsidy to politics anymore. The second factor contributing to the shift toward the hegemonic autocracy concerns the succession of the state's head. Ayatollah Khamenei is already in his 80s and speculation about his possible successors has become the topic of every political discussion about Iran. In undemocratic regimes, peaceful succession requires coherent and unified power that can suppress potential challengers. Now that Iran decided to even more weaken the democratic parts of its government, we want to see where does it fall in the spectrum of autocracy. I will discuss all three classifications that both individually and collectively can explain the new characteristics of the regime. The first potential outcome of that transition can be the formation of a personalist regime. Many of the characteristics of that regime type match with the Islamic Republic. Ayatollah Khamenei has already increasingly intervened in executive efforts. There is no constraints on the leader's exercise of power. Even the Guardian Council, which determines the regime's ultimate interpretation of constitution, made it clear that the leader's power is not limited to what is mentioned in the constitution. At this juncture, it becomes difficult to distinguish the regime from the state. This ties into the establishment of the leader's cultish personality. Khamenei embodies the characteristics of revolutionary youth adhering to specific lifestyle model and an ideological framework applicable to all life aspects. The next possible scenario is the emergence of a single party system. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, is prepared to carry out many of the functions of a ruling party. A single party works as a persuasion network for policies and as a means of distributing resources such as financial aid, jobs, and schooling, especially in rural areas. In addition to that function, the IRGC has been mobilizing the masses for elections. Also, its quote-unquote volunteer militia branch is a nationwide cluster-like network for recruitment, security vetting, and ideological training of the vanguard needed for every area of public affairs. The least likely future scenario for Iran is a military regime. 
again anchored by the Revolutionary Guard. The IRGC has become the major provider of human resources for every sector of government in a manner some scholars refer to as internal colonialization. From sectors like banking to aerospace, health and construction, the IRGC forces evolved into the quasi-state entity on the brink of dominating the entire administration. Right now, a record number of races administrators, mayors, governors, and high-ranking managers are former IRGC members. Moreover, the unprecedented frequency of economic demand-driven protests during recent years has occasioned more state repression, which gives security-focused and coercive divisions of the IRGC supremacy vis-a-vis other institutions in the government. The recent trend has been accelerating, and it has helped IRGC garner more resources. To sum up, I conclude Iran has shifted toward more authoritarian regime. However, it is challenging to categorize the post-electoral authoritarian version of Islamic Republic of Iran yet. It could be a topic of debate for scholars of Middle Eastern politics, particularly when a new leader comes to power. And finally, we'll hear from Ahmedi Mahrez. She's a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the Doctoral School of Political Science, Public Policy and International Relations at Central European University. She's also currently a pre-doctoral fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative program. Very frequently, we encounter stories or accounts of Habib Bourguiba, Tunisia's inaugural president, portraying him as this revered figure who accomplished significant feats for his country. Now, what really marked or distinguished Bourguiba from other leaders in the region is not only his fight for independence against colonial power, but also the set of revolutionary reforms and policies that were implemented during his rule. These reforms centered around two main key issues. Uh, The first is secularization. Bourguiba was a strong believer in the separation between state and religion. For instance, in his attempt to undermine the power of religion, he abolished Islamic courts, he ended Azaytuna University program and replaced it by the Faculty of Theology He banned the veil and niqab um, at schools and universities. The second key issue that distinguished Bourguiba is women's rights. One of his most cited achievements is the introduction of the Personal Status Code in 1957, which granted significant rights to women, such as the right to initiate divorce, the right to work, travel, and study without the permission of the husband. The laws also banned polygamy and put an end to the practice of repudiation, among many other practices. He often called the veil le misérable chiffon, or the miserable rag, which he staunchly rejected as a symbol of women's submission in society. So when he was in power, he crafted institutions and legal frameworks that allowed him to make all these groundbreaking reforms and make people internalize his ideology of secularization. Now, the question that I look at in this project is, how much of a legacy did Bourguiba really have on current Tunisians' political attitudes? In other words, are there any generational disparities between people who experienced the regime at first hand and those who had little to no exposure to it? I frame this project within the broader historical legacies uh, literature, which looks at how major events, such as regime change, policy intervention, or civil wars, leave a durable impact on people's attitudes, beliefs, and behavior, or what scholars call patterns of persistence. So really, these attitudes persist over time and get passed on to other generations. One very common example of these historical legacies from the literature are communist legacies. Existing studies by scholars in the field show that people who lived through communism show attitudinal differences from those who who had not been exposed to communist uh, regimes on a variety of issues such as attitudes towards the market and political ideology. So, I argue in this paper that Bourguiba's regime did leave a durable impact on current Tunisians' political attitudes. I distinguish between three age cohorts that have lived through the regime at different phases of it. The first category is what I call the adult exposure. 
And these are individuals who were born before 1956, so before the independence of Tunisia, and had lived through the regime as young adults. The second category is what I call the early exposure. And these are people born after 1956 and basically lived through the regime at a young age. And finally, people with little to no exposure to Bourguiba's regime. So basically, these are individuals born at the end of the Bourguiba era and then the following uh, regimes as well. Using the R parameter data from Tunisia uh, wave 5, I focus on three main questions. The first is related to the separation between state and religion measured by people's support for laws based on Sharia versus laws based on the will of the people. The second issue is support for equal inheritance law between men and women. And finally, the third one is support for the privatization of religious practice. The results are consistent with the theory and the hypothesis of the paper. So basically, people with adult and early exposure to Bourguiba's regime are more likely to say that the laws of the country should be based on the will of the people rather than based on Sharia law. They are also more supportive of the equal inheritance law between men and women. And uh, finally, they are more supportive of the privatization of religion as compared to people who had little to no exposure to Bourguiba's regime. Now, I also look at other data sources such as the Arab Barometer Wave 7 and the Afro Barometer Round 7. And again, both of these data sets replicate the previous findings. Basically, people with adult and early exposure to Bourguiba's regime are more supportive of the separation between state and religion, as well as the privatization of religious practice. Now, these results are really at odds with modernization theory, for instance, which posed that younger generations are more progressive and more secular because of modernization trends. But the findings from this paper clearly suggest otherwise. It does not seem to be the case in Tunisia, and there is indeed a Bourguiba's legacy that still resonates among Tunisians today. We can say that these findings contribute to our understanding of past historical legacies and specifically how such authoritarian regimes can have an attitudinal influence on its citizens, even years after the breakdown of the regime. And that's it for our first great episode of season 13 of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks to Bob Kubinek, Ansar Jassim, Elizabeth Barker-Magyar, Amir Mahdavi, and Amini Mahrez for joining us, and to all of you for listening. See you next week, where you'll be hearing from Alice Wilson speaking about her new book, Afterlives of Revolution. Yeah.